Hi, this is the Organizational Success Academy from the Oxford Review, bringing you the very latest research in leadership, management, organizational development, design, transformation and change, human resources and human capital, organizational learning, coaching and work psychology from around the world to make you the most up-to-date and knowledgeable person in the room. Today, I've got with us Ari Kruglansky from the University of Maryland, is a professor there, and he's written a really interesting paper on the psychology of extremism, how motivational imbalance breeds intemperance. So, Ari, welcome to the review. And I just wondered, it's an absolute pleasure, uh, a, a real pleasure. I've seen some of your previous work. Um, and I just wondered if you could um, just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background and your research history and interests. Uh, my name is Ari Kruglansky. Uh, I'm a professor at the University of Maryland in College Park. And I'm a social psychologist, primarily interested in human motivation. Uh, up until recently, up until the year 2001, I was very happy to study uh, psychological processes in the privacy and comfort of my laboratory with university students as subjects, uh, studying processes of basic human motivation, learning, uh, cognition, behavior. Uh, but something uh, changed drastically in my life following 9-11, uh, the shock that all of us experienced. And uh, scientifically, at that point, uh, the National Academies of Science in the United States offered their services to President George W. Bush to provide some understanding of terrorism. Uh, and uh, President Bush responded very positively. And as a consequence, uh, several different panels were established to study different aspects of terrorism. Uh, the chemical aspect, the animal aspect, the food aspect, promoting terrorism through poisonous foods, uh, environmental aspects. One of those aspects was the social and behavioral aspects of violent extremism. And uh, I was invited to participate in a panel to that effect. At that time, I knew nothing about terrorism, but that was no reason for me not to join and learn about it, uh, which I did. Uh, and we scoured the literature, uh, learned as much as we could. As a consequence of this process, we produced a document for the US Congress called making the nation safer. And that was the beginning for me of, of a long-standing interest in terrorism, applying to it what I knew about human motivation. At that time also, uh, the Department of Homeland Security issued a large competition to establish a center for excellence for the study of terrorism. There was a big competition in 72 universities entered the fray, including all the Ivies, Harvard, Stanford, uh, Columbia, and all the others. It was our great stroke of luck that we uh, won that competition. And I was one of the co-founders of a, a Center for Excellence for the Study of Terrorism and the Response of Terrorism, the social and behavioral aspect. There were other centers, the economic aspect, the animal aspect, the food aspect, 
in various uh, universities. And that was the beginning for me uh, to, to be interested in the problem of terrorism. Uh, at the beginning, uh, I had no empirical data, so uh, I satisfied myself with theorizing. But after a while, uh, the grants kept coming in and we were able to study terrorism in its various manifestations all over the globe. We studied the liberation tigers of Tamil Elam in Sri Lanka. We studied jihadist terrorists in the Philippines and Indonesia. We studied the uh, uh, neo-Nazis in Germany, white supremacists in the United States. Uh, and we devoted a large chunk of our time to the study of, of these phenomena. Uh, at some point, because of political correctness, Obama administration decided to not use the term terrorism anymore, but rather to switch to violent extremism that somehow seemed less offensive, less connected to Islamic terrorism and, and so forth. And uh, that switch for me was meaningful because uh, the term violent extremism suggested to me that maybe there are other types of terror, uh, extremism, not only violent extremism, uh, which led me to explore the phenomenon of extremism more generally. And that is how I came up with uh, the theory, the model that we then applied to various domains. So this was my long-winded answer to your very brief question, David. No, it's a very, very, it's a, a very good answer. Um, and as I say, I've been following your work. I've, so I'm, I'm from a, originally from a, a, a military and police background, but also involved um, a lot in uh, counterterrorism training um, uh, through Cranfield University years ago. Um, so I've, I've come across a lot of the reports that um, you've authored and, and been involved in. Um, so um, in, in terms of this paper, particularly, um, I know yourself, you, you were working with a, a team of colleagues from the Agalonian University, um, which is a very beautiful university. I don't know whether you be. Uh, yes, I've, I've, I've had the uh, the honour of teaching there um, in oh. Krakow, um, the University of Maryland, Wayne University, the University of Quebec, and the University of Rome, which is a really interesting group of people by the sounds of it. Um, and the paper, The Psychology of Extremism, How Motivational Imbalance Breeds Intemperance. Um, so can you just first give us an overview of what led up to this particular paper and this piece of research? Well, as I said, you know, we're all interested in extremism in various forms. And uh, it was uh, our insight uh, based on discussions that we have had in the team, very international team, all colleagues interested in the same topic, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, there could be other types of extremism, that people are extreme in various different ways. Uh, people engage in extreme sports. They follow extreme diets. Uh, there is such thing as addiction to uh, a substance, uh, of course, that has uh, devastating consequences for people's lives. Uh, there is uh, stalking and uh, getting fixated on a person in uh, instances of extreme love. So all these phenomena uh, were fascinating to us. Uh, in addition to violent extremism and 
and the sacrifice that it entails. And we were wondering, might it be the case that underneath all these different strange bedfellows, as, as it were, uh, there is concealed a, a common psychological dynamic. Maybe extremism, uh, despite its very diverse manifestations, has a common psychological process at bottom. And that led us to exploring the issue more thoroughly, uh, looking at data from various domains of extremism. Uh, and we decided that indeed there is a common dynamic. And that led us to the formulation of this model. And the rest is in the paper. Yes, yeah, and, and a very interesting paper it is too. Um, so, um, what do you actually mean? Because the, the paper is talking about motivational imbalance. What do you actually mean by motivational imbalance? This is really the core issue, David, of motivational imbalance. And our view of motivation uh, is the following that basically all human beings have the same set of motivations basic motivations, fundamental motivations, in the same way as we all experience hunger and thirst, all human beings, all human beings have the instinct for survival. There are some basic motivations. There are also psychological motivations that are fundamental and common to all human beings. Now, of course, if you look at uh, human behavior, it's highly diverse. It manifests itself in many different behaviors across different cultures, different customs. How is it called? Uh, is it all uh, compatible with the idea that people have the same set of motivations? Well, these motivations give rise to various ways of fulfilling those motivations. And these are determined by context, by culture, by history. So for example, uh, take uh, an example of hunger. Hunger uh, can be satisfied in a Western culture by ordering a meal at a restaurant uh, or ordering in to be delivered. Whereas in a, in a hunter-gatherer culture, hunger may mean the need to go on a hunt and, and, and catch one's own food, uh, as it were. Uh, in the same way, culture determines the specific task, the specific goals, but they all go back right to the very basic needs. And the same with the need for affection, the need for belonging. We are particularly interested in the need for mattering and significance that to us is a, a huge mover that actually makes the world move around. The motivational imbalance occurs when one of these basic needs is so dominant that it overrides all the others. That can happen. Yes. And when that happens, uh, behaviors become legitimized, become be, behaviors become possible that otherwise would be constrained by those other needs because a behavior that serves this dominant need might clash with other needs. However, if those other needs are suppressed and subdued, uh, then it opens up the, the scope for all kinds of behaviors to occur that otherwise would not be permissible. And this is when extreme behaviors happen. Behaviors that involve sacrifices, as it were, of, of those other needs 
now become possible. Again, to uh, hark back to the example of hunger, uh, when we are moderately hunger, our eating is constrained by health considerations, by taste considerations, by all kinds of, by aesthetics. Uh, we would not eat something that is distasteful, that is uh, uh, bad for your health, bad for your diet. Uh, we will be choosy and selective. However, when the hunger becomes extremely powerful, extremely dominant, all those other considerations are set aside and an individual might then eat anything that is available, including uh, tree bark, uh, insects, other yeah. animals, uh, cannibalism, or you know, behaviors that are totally extreme, totally prohibited by other considerations to which most people, uh, in what to which most people subscribe. So that's how extremism happens when one need becomes so dominant that uh, other needs uh, are suppressed. And this yes. is the opposite of moderation. Moderation is trying to have all of one's basic needs satisfied. So for example, in the context of organization, we talk about work-life balance to attend to your work, but also have time for leisure activities, for your family, for relationships, and so on and so forth. And under normal circumstances, even if we have an extreme context, so for example, somebody's in a context where they, they're hungry and they're eating extreme foods, foods that they wouldn't normally consider, once the context comes back to normal, most people balance back out again. What we're talking exactly. about here is a fixation that um, even when it does balance back out, they're still ignoring their other needs and focusing on just one set of needs. It, this is a very important point <clears throat> because we do not satisfy all our needs all at the same time. Usually there is a sequence. At one point, you know, one need is dominant and we satisfy it. At other points, we move to another need. So there there is a kind of moving back and forth, multitasking sequentially. Uh, but uh, when extremism happens, we are fixated on a basic need for a long period of time. And this is difficult to sustain because all those other needs, as we said, are basic. And so it's very difficult to suppress them for a large uh, amount of time. And uh, in many cases, it requires... Uh, a certain personality, but also it requires, in many cases, a group support, uh, living in an environment when this need is so important that people are ready to sacrifice everything else, as it happens sometimes in terrorist organizations, in cults, uh, in all kinds of organizations that support a given need to the exclusion of yeah. everything else. Yes, um, and it's and it's... It's that fixation that becomes interesting in as much so we you know we see this with some artists, so artists who forget to feed themselves um, they there's no grooming, they have no relationships, their art becomes everything um, 
And so in terms of extremism, we're not just talking about um, terrorism here. We're talking about extreme behaviors in organizations, workaholics who um, have no time for relationships in academia. You know, we see some professors who've um, their entire life is just around their research and them keeping good relationships with colleagues, for example, really isn't an issue for them. Exactly, and you see uh, great humanitarians who devote all the time, all the time to others, and face uh, enormous uh, discomfort. Uh, I was just uh, interviewed yesterday about a very interesting uh, person, a Brit actually, uh, a Hollywood actor who lived in Los Angeles for decades, <clears throat> and uh, at the age of fifty-one volunteered to join the uh, Kurdish uh, militia, YPG, to fight against ISIS. Mm. Uh, you know, facing almost uh, almost uh, sure death or, or, or a great injury. Most of his uh, fellow comrades were killed, in fact. Uh, what motivates a person to do something like that, to abandon yes. all, travel thousands of miles mm -hmm. to join a fight in extremely uncomfortable, the heat of the Syrian desert uh, in conditions that are terrible, surrounded by death and destruction, uh, living his comfortable uh, existence in Hollywood with luxury and comfort, uh, driving around in his Porsche, uh, what what causes that kind of thing? And it, in, in this particular case, it's the quest for glory and significance that overrode everything else. Uh, and, yes. you know, this is not a, an isolated example. We have uh, people who joined the Crusades uh, in the Middle Ages or the thousands of people who flocked to fight, uh, to fight on behalf of ISIS, uh, yep. the, the volunteers for the Spanish... Uh, civil war in the 1930s between the Republicans and the Nationalists. So this uh, kind of extremism can be motivated by this desire for glory, this desire for significance, which is a basic human need. Yes, and we, and we see it, you know, we see it with some sports people who become fixated on being better and better and better and, and everything else comes out. And there's a fine line between something that's a, a positive form of extremism and one that's detrimental, not only to the own individual's health, but also to society, for example, and the kinds of extremism that we talk about in terms of um, terrorism, I suppose, you know, um, people who become fixated on damaging a nation or damaging people from a nation or a type of people as we see with kind of white supremacists and 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 those kinds of extremisms as well yes the extremism can have very negative consequences for the person and for the society uh it can have positive consequences at least for society a great painter like Degas or Picasso were extremists uh, in their own term, but uh, uh, our culture has benefited from their great works. Uh, Mother yes. Teresa, Mother was, Teresa, yes. Mother Teresa uh, mm -hmm. sacrificed her life to work with the mm -hmm. poor of 
Calcutta, uh, but uh, they benefited from it. Uh, but there's also the cost and benefits for the individual. And, and the problem for the individual who is an extremist that they put all their eggs in one basket, as it were. Hmm. They are totally dependent emotionally on what happens in that domain. If everything goes well, they are exhilarated, they experience uh, euphoria and great, great happiness uh, that is uncommon, you know, to us common uh, mortals. Uh, but uh, if things do not go well, they are cast into the depths of depression, they suffer tremendously, they don't have anywhere else to go. They, they do not have any do other domain where they can find a satisfaction and, and happiness. Yes, and, and it's kind of, it's that, the distinction between being focused, um, but all right through to those kinds of levels of extremism. I just wonder, um, what are the kinds of attributes that lead to that motivational imbalance and those levels of, of extremism? Uh, I think that the, we now have uh, started developing a scale that measures that. Mm. Uh, and we have some interesting data. So there is a personality, uh, a kind of impulsivity that allows mm. people to suppress everything and move into one direction. Uh, we try to see to what extent it's connected with other things. Uh, we, we find that the most uh, toxic, if you will, combination is a high need for cognitive closure and this proclivity uh, to be motivated very strongly by something. Because the, the need for cognitive closure leads people to fixate to freeze on something on which they decide. So if these people are both highly motivated and uh, highly passionate, experience things with great intensity, and also high on the need for cognitive closure, once they find that thing on which to fixate, they would not let go. And they can be really uh, the kind of person you discussed who not only uh, pursue something with great intensity, but they do not pursue other things, they do not satisfy their other needs. Yes, and as you say, it can become toxic extremism, so there's positive forms of extremism, but also toxic forms of, and not just toxic for the individual, but society and things like that. So, so what, what are the main takeaways then for practitioners in organizations? Um, because there are extremists in organizations. Um, and I just wondered what your thoughts were about that. Uh, again, you know, you probably want people who are highly devoted. Mm -hmm. So you want people who have the capacity for passion, especially in some professions where, uh, tenacity is of great importance. But on the other hand, you do not want people who uh, forget everything else. Uh, so you, you, you need a kind of combination of people who are passionate, and at the same time, not fixated. Uh, perhaps people who are high on passion, but also low on the need for cognitive closure people who will consider alternatives. There is very interesting work by one of 
my co-authors on this uh, paper, uh, Robert Valeran from uh, Université de Québec à Montréal, and he dis uh, distinguished between two types of passion, obsessive passion, which is what we are talking about, uh, that leads to extremism, leads to suppression of everything else, and harmonious passion. And he has scales to measure it in various domains. Uh, and people with harmonious passions are the kind of people you would want to have in an organization, that on the one hand, they're capable of devoting their, their sense to the task uh, with great intensity that is required to, for success. On the other hand, they would not be the kind of people who are incapable of working in a team, who are incapable of human relations, who are incapable of seeing other aspects of their own problem, but are totally fixated on this one thing. Uh, so harmonious passion, people who are high on passion, low on a need for closure, are the kind of persons that would be probably profitable for organizations to recruit. Yes, and I think that's quite important. And I, I also suspect that there's probably a connection here with cognitive flexibility in terms of, you know, the, the, the people who are obsessive passionates um, tend to lack that, whereas um, the more harmonious uh, obsessives um, tend to be uh, tend to have a greater level of um, cognitive flexibility and it was what you were saying is that the ability to be able to have peripheral interests as well to be able to see the consequences of things to be able to work through you know you know what are other consequences are happening here both for myself and for whatever it happens to be the organization or society exactly cognitive flexibility when I mentioned co a need for cognitive closure, this is the kind of need that leads people to fixate. We talk, to, uh, we, we talk in, uh, in our theory of cognitive closure about seizing and freezing, that they seize on the first bit of information that provides them closure and uh, freeze upon it uh, and thus becoming impervious to subsequent information. And they therefore dis uh, display very low cognitive flexibility. Uh, they are, uh, you know, frozen on their conceptions. Uh, there are all kinds of uh, interesting examples of uh, of people uh, who, uh, in, in uh, surprise attacks, uh, uh, that uh, despite the information that was available to policymakers and the military, uh, they were so frozen on the conception. Uh, all the various surprise attacks uh, in Israel, the Yom Kippur War. Uh, in which uh, Egypt and, and, and Syria surprised Israel almost with deadly consequences mm -hmm. for the country. Uh, Operation Barbarossa of Hitler against uh, the Soviet Union, uh, the Pearl Harbor attack. The information was there, but people would not be sub sufficiently cognitive flexible to consider it. They were so fixated on their previous assessment. So that's mm. very important, has uh, huge consequences. Uh, going all the way to, to the, the Troy example, uh, where mm. uh, there were warnings that uh, the Greeks bearing gifts should not be trusted, <laughs> yet they were trusted and we know what happened next.
Yes, that's a, that's a really nice example. And, and certainly from my own research, one of the areas that I've been looking at a lot over the, the last 20 years is uh, to do with um, tolerance of uncertainty. And I, th I think there are a lot of connections there. Um, Indeed. People who have uh, low levels of tolerance for uncertainty um, are much more likely to be surprised by these kinds of events, to get fixated on things and to believe their own rhetoric um, and, and not see the wider picture. Whereas uh, people with higher levels of tolerance of uncertainty usually see that peripheral story and are less surprised because they can anticipate things, but they can also th see things that are coming from the kind of left wing, as it were. Exactly. It's such, again, it's a fundamental motivation, this need for mm. a closure uh, that uh, has these, you know, vastly important consequences for uh, for for people, for societies. Uh, yes. Actually, these motivations uh, sh sh uh, shape the course of history. Uh, mm. You know, all these different decision makers, mistakes. Yes, and, and particularly when we get into the into the arena of politics and politicians. Although I don't yeah. want to go there. <laughs> that's yeah. a, that's a whole different that's a whole different ball game. It is. It is. This has been fascinating. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, you were going to say that the motivations play out in these large scale social phenomena. For example. Mm this need for uh, significance, for mattering, for dignity, for recognition, is something that uh, motivates large social movements mm. across history. Uh, it's uh, what uh, you know, philosophers like Hegel, Fichte, Kant, Sartre, Marx talked about in understanding mm. Great social movements, uh, the revolutions of you know various kinds, the French Revolution. So it was all about dignity, about uh, about uh, equality, about fraternity, about uh, you know the the Russian revolutions, mm. the war of the classes that uh, inspired by Marx. Yes, the American Revolution. Uh, they all were motivated by these basic human motives. So we as psychologists uh, are very modest in studying individuals, but uh, they, these uh, aspects of human psychology play out in larger macro-level events oh, yeah. that shape the course of history. And John Stuart Mill actually uh, asserted as much in, in uh, I guess, uh, 18th century uh, mm. to say that uh, uh, all social phenomena have their basis in the human nature. And you know that—that's what he, he must have meant. Yes, yes, certainly. And and um, one of the growing areas of psychological interest, but um, particularly, is around motivated reasoning, and how people's things like their political background shapes the way that they're actually perceiving yes. things and what they see and they don't see, how it yes. forms their biases and things like that. Which is, it's, is it? It's such an important area. We recently. It is published a paper with a provocative title, All Thinking is Wishful Thinking. And, and we mean by that that uh, all thinking is motivated. Uh, even if the motivation is for accuracy, it's still motivated. So if accuracy is the wish and thinking is motivated by the wish for accuracy, it's still wishful thinking. Uh, the place of motivation in cognition is of paramount importance in our estimation.
Yes, I, I would absolutely agree with that. And it, it drives an awful lot of not only people's actions, but the thinking behind the actions, but also their perceptions, what they see and what they don't see, absolutely. what they think about, they don't think about. Yeah, absolutely. They, they, I, I could be here all day with this one. <laughs> I'd just like to thank you so much, Harry. This has been absolutely fascinating. Um, can I just ask, um, how can people contact you if they want to? Uh, my email would be one thing. I have a website. Uh, yes, I'll, I'll put a link in the, in the show notes. Thank you for listening to the Oxford Review podcast. For free research briefings, audio and video research briefings, research infographics and a whole lot more, visit oxford-review.com. That's oxford-review.com. And please subscribe, rate and review this podcast. It would mean a lot to us to have your feedback so that we can make this podcast even better for you. (laughs) 